0: This is a Toledo City Podcast. We're back with the Toledo City Podcast for this week. My name is Al Jacobs. I'm here with Toledo City Paper Assignment Editor, Athena Kakovis.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: Um, We're sitting down today with Toledo City Council Member, Nick Komovs. Yes. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Today, we want to talk about the Equal Pay Act that you helped introduce to the City Council. First, could you tell us what it is?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It has a sort of innocuous name, the Pay Equity Act, so people automatically have a gut reaction to it, I think. But once they learn that it is merely banning employers from asking you about your salary history, people sort of back away a little bit more. You know, People have a gut reaction, I think, when we start talking about equal pay because... People have reactions about how women are treated or people of color, right? And so I think this piece is unique in that it doesn't matter who you are, it's going to have a marked uh, improvement in the lives of women and people of color. But even for white dudes, they're going to be able to see this as a a positive for them as well.
1: So it's like almost more of an employee protection measure that the implications are going to help with the pay gap.
2: Yeah, so what we know is that most women are paid less than their male counterparts. People of color are paid less than their uh, white counterparts. Many millennials, for instance, came out of college, right? We were all promised, go to college, get a degree, you'll come out and you'll get this great job. And we came out of college and the recession hit. And so for many millennials, they took jobs at a pay level that was not commensurate with the work that they were doing. Um, and they did it because they needed to survive, well, now we're all subject to that. So when you go to your next employer and they say, how much were you paid at that job? And you tell them and they base your pay on that previous pay that was lower than what it probably should have been for the work that you were doing. I mean, it takes years and years and years to catch up. And in fact, for women, we know that it takes about 106 years for them to catch up. And if you're a, a woman of color, it takes you about 170 years to catch up to what your white male counterpart is making.
0: Wow. Wow. Why is this issue of the pay disparity between men and women, how did it become a problem in the first place?
2: Yeah, I think that's a good question. (laughs) Um... I think, you know, you can still hear some of the arguments against equal pay for women when you listen to some folks that are conservative-leaning, right? Uh, For instance, the State House in Ohio is currently debating a bill that has this very same measure in it, as well as six other measures that have been identified as means to close the pay gap that we know exists. Um, And Representative Boggs, who introduced the piece, was on her way to the press conference to announce that she was introducing this piece of legislation. And on the elevator, on the way to the press conference, she was riding in the elevator with her one of her male colleagues, who said, well, why do you need to focus on this? Women should be paid less. They have babies, and so they miss work. And, you know, sometimes they're less productive. Every-. So we're talking about ingrained, misogynistic, you know, viewpoints about women that uh, just... Factually that aren't true, but many people still have that belief, right? So, like
0: so Outdated beliefs. Exactly. Okay.
2: So
1: one point of clarification i like to make or like to ask about when it comes to the pay gap is, are we talking about a pay gap or an earnings gap? So typically statistics talk about how much a woman makes over a 40-year period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess that's a misconception that people seem to have. What's the difference between a pay gap and an earnings gap? So when we look at statistics typically associated with the pay gap, we're looking at how much an individual makes over a 40-year span of time as opposed to what they're going to be paid at the end of a day or at the end of a year. Yeah.
2: So, for instance, we know that women over 40 years in the state of Ohio earn about $440,000 less than their male counterparts, and that is pay over a lifetime.
1: One of the arguments that I often hear when people talk about the pay gap is they say, that's ridiculous. I work at a company and if a male and a female or a woman and a man are both hired at the same time, the woman is not going to be paid less than the man. Mm. Therefore, where's the pay gap? It doesn't exist. So when we talk about the pay gap, we're talking about value of earnings over a lifetime or a span of time, not what your hired rate is going to be.
2: I got you. Um, I guess, you know, all studies indicate that regardless, there are many people that believe that the gap doesn't even exist in the first place. Um, But all studies that account for things like pay gap or educational attainment or work history, all of those things. No matter which statistic we're looking at, women and people of color come in under their white male counterparts. And that even, you know, some people want to adjust it based on several different factors. And even then you'll still find a disparity that exists. So I think in the case of the salary history ban question, um, this has been identified as a best practice uh, to help to eliminate the the pay gap as it exists, or an earnings gap, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> right? or whatever the discrepancy uh, yeah. is. Yeah. And uh, in fact, California has found that in the two years since they've passed this same law, they've actually been able to close the gap for women by 10% uh, in these two years. So, yeah,
1: that's incredible. So currently, at least based on the news article that I read earlier today, mm-hmm. Um, there's 15 statewide bans and 12 local bans. So that would be in a city or a municipality um, on asking about salary history. So this isn't like a new thing that you guys are introducing. This is like tried and true legislation that has seen results in other areas of the country.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, one of the uh, arguments against The piece that I introduced was that when they did this in Philadelphia, they're being sued by the Chamber of Commerce that's Mm. there. And that process is still happening. That court battle is still happening. And the Chamber of Commerce's argument was you're limiting our right to free speech, right? Because they can't ask this question. So that's their, where, where's our free speech? But the reality is we limit free speech often in life every day. And in particular, we do around hiring, right? Because we can't ask you, how many kids do you have? Are you married, right? These are questions that employers are not allowed to ask. So that's a limit on free speech right there. So the concept that we are limiting free speech, and so therefore we should throw it out, is not an argument that I'm willing to listen to. Uh, but the court did say, however, that Philadelphia didn't have the proof to show that this would have a marked improvement in the lives of people that live there. So you can't just willy-nilly make a law and pass it without mm-hmm. it actually having its you know intended purpose. At that point, however, Philadelphia was only the second place in the country to ever pass a law like this, and nobody had done any research, right? Mm-hmm. So now we have the states that you mentioned, or the number of them in the municipalities, and then you, ha- uh, you actually have academia taking a look at this and saying okay let's study this so in california for instance they studied they knew the ban was coming so before the ban hit they did a survey and then they did it afterward with the same number of people and they found that it actually had an improvement in the lives of folks so the philadelphia case almost means nothing at this point even though it's still in process Mm -hmm. because the argument that's being used against it is that there's no proof that this works well now we have that proof so.
1: Yeah, so in San Francisco, the survey that they did, were they asking people what their current salary was or how much they made over the year? Because this goes back to that earnings gap question or earnings-slash-pay question where it's hard to come up with proof of result without having at least a few years because we're looking at how – Disadvantages accumulate in a person's life, as opposed to what they might face on a single day.
2: Yeah, so they were taking. There's a couple of studies. So one of them takes a look at uh, pay and compares it to people in the same company to show that some of um, uh, another one that I looked at actually took people's earnings from one job to the next job to see, you know, if we if that question is answered, does it impact it? And then if they look at another employer, does it, you know, and that doesn't ask it, what's that outcome going to look like? Basically, what, they're, what we're finding is that by eliminating this question, you, the employer is forced to evaluate the person based on their educational attainment. That's still a factor and should be a factor, right? People work hard to get to the level they're at. Mm-hmm. Uh, you take a look at work history, and then you look at the job itself and you say, okay, this job costs this much money to us. It has this much value to us. And then they come up with a compensation package that is based on those factors, because what we know is uh, there's a there's a Harvard study out there that says, let's say the three of us, we're going to put on an event or this podcast, right? And we're okay. saying, what's our budget for this podcast going to be? And pretty, I, and pretty low. Pretty low. <laughs> yeah, right? But let's say it's going to be like, let's say, you know, I was like, oh, I think it'll cost us like $500. That suddenly becomes our starting point. So no matter where the conversation goes, we're always framing it based on that first number that's been not, thrown out. We're not
1: going to try to spend as little as we can get away with.
2: Right. right. And so what... Companies are finding out is that when they ask this question of salary history, they focus on that, right? And so they build the compensation package off of that. And that's not good for the employer, and it's not good for the employee. It's certainly not good for the employee because you don't want to be held back based on what your pay was previously, because you should be compensated at the level that is appropriate for the job that you're about to do. But employers are finding it to be good because they're reviewing more candidates. They're taking more time on the candidates to find out and get to know them to make sure they're better fits. Uh, people are staying longer in workplaces. So, I mean, there's a lot of these what they call tertiary benefits that come with this piece as well.
1: Say I run a company and I and you're applying for a job. I'm not allowed, if this was you know enacted, I wouldn't be allowed to ask you what your previous salary was. But if Al was your previous employer, could I ask him?
2: Uh, that's a good question. The answer to that is that you cannot ask the incoming employee, right? Yeah. So,
1: so it's poor form to ask a previous employer, but I do wonder whether or not, yeah, you know, it would be up to you whether or not you'd want to disclose that to me, but.
2: Yeah. And that was one of the questions that came up a lot in our discussion at the committee hearing was, well, isn't there a time when it's appropriate to find out? And so I was trying to show that there's never really a time that's that's appropriate for this question to be asked. Uh, Gary Johnson, in particular, was pushing back on this and saying, well, let's say that they lowballed your offer and you say to them, I'm worth 80000 and they only offered you $60,000. know, would not it be better for the company to ask you? Because if they knew that you were making seventy-five at your last job, and I kept saying, well, then you would just, as a person, what would you do? You right. would just say, I believe I'm worth this much money. And if you're not going to do it, You don't have to accept.
1: So it's not. This isn't preventing people from having that conversation. Absolutely. If you're one of the few millennials who did really well after college (laughs) Mm -hmm. and landed an awesome job, and now you're going to an even more awesome job, and you wanted to talk about how much you made before, you can do that. No, anybody voluntarily
2: is going to be able to uh, provide that information.
1: How is that going to affect other people in the applicant pool, though? If you have some sort of, you know. Big dog coming in being yeah. like, I made 120K last year and nobody else discloses their information. I guess maybe that might even put that person at a disadvantage.
2: I mean, the risk is greater by providing your salary mm-hmm. history in terms of what your compensation is going to look like. So the recommendation for anybody, entering into negotiations would be not to reveal what that is. There are plenty of resources available to show individuals the best way to negotiate with a potential employer, and all of them will tell you, do not reveal your salary history, because we know that it just inevitably almost always lowers what your value is, and that your value is not indicative of how much you were paid by a previous employer.
1: Yeah, so. like if you're playing poker, you don't show everyone your hand right. and then make a bet. <laughs> so use a little more tact than that.
0: So where are you seeing the most resistance to this proposed legislation?
2: I've been very surprised being out in the community and talking with People about this, right? We've had a mixer between Women of Toledo and United Way's Women's Initiative. Uh, We had a couple of other open forums where people could come and talk to us. Uh, So far, I have received not a single email or phone call in opposition. Nobody came to the public hearing to testify against this piece. So, from where I'm standing, the only resistance that I see is a couple of council members. Um, who obviously have somebody in their ear telling them to be opposed to it. I'm not sure who those people are because they've not revealed themselves. I think the main resistance is coming from the Chamber of Commerce on this. They've resisted it in any setting where this has been passed. Mm -hmm. I anticipated that being the case here, and I'm not incorrect in that, but they're not being very vocal against it. Um, So that either tells us that they see that this is the coming trend and that, in fact, is, right, the mm-hmm. the National Association of Human Resource Professionals or whatever it's called. I'm sorry, yeah. I got that wrong if you're listening. It's fine. Um, <laughs> they, they actually identified this as a question to eliminate no matter where you are. So, you know, if you're a human resource employee and you go to a conference, they're going to be advocating to eliminate it in your workplace. Right? Yeah. Well, the the first for piece for of resources. legislation
1: was not too long ago, maybe like five years ago or something. And yeah. since then, a lot of places have taken it over. So it's hasn't even been a slow crawl. It's been a pretty quick, like, oh, that makes sense. We'll do that too.
2: It's been quick coming from municipalities and state governments, but it's all it's been even quicker in the actual workforce, right? Mm-hmm. That companies are embracing this. So when Cincinnati passed this down there, they were fortunate enough to have several large companies come forward and say, we already don't do this because we think it's a bad practice for the potential employee and for us. And so we've already eliminated it.
0: From what I understand, they haven't set a final vote date for this proposal yet. Mm -hmm. Say they do. What are the odds that it passes?
2: I think the odds are really strong. Definitely what we learned last night were that there are at least eight members very much in favor of passing this piece. And I think as it's written. There is a general question out there about the enforcement mechanism and whether or not a city has jurisdiction to enforce it in the way that we've created the mechanism here. And to me, it gets down to the very core of what is a municipality. We live in a state that uh, doles out money from Columbus and it goes to county systems. So we have Lucas County that we live in. All counties are responsible for emergency services, police, fire, getting clean water to places, you know, providing a lot of these basic services. And inside counties, municipalities can spring up and then they can form their own version of government and they can govern themselves. And that means that they then provide police and all those other things, which is what Toledo does. And all of our property taxes go back to the county. We only get money from income taxes. So the way that it's set up, it's a little bit unfair to a city, in my opinion. But what's even worse and more egregious, in my opinion, is that we take on the responsibility of policing ourselves, making sure that we have clean water, all of these other things, and we pay for it. And then the state wants to block us from being able to invoke what we call home rule this concept that we can govern ourselves, we can create our own laws to protect our own people. Well, they keep eroding that process all the time while they're also eroding local government funds, for instance, and these other things, and they make it harder on us. So I always jokingly say, maybe we should unincorporate and just become a township because then the county would be responsible for doing it. Mm -hmm. Because if all I'm doing is appropriating money for potholes, then what am I doing?
0: Nick Comives, member of Toledo City Council. Thanks for coming on the show today. Anytime. It's always fun to talk. I love podcasts. Yeah, this was a blast. From the Toledo City
2: paper have a great week.